Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you're joining us via live stream or you're here with us live, I want you to find Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans is a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to a very important, significant group of believers located in the city of Rome, the most important city of course, in the first century. When you find Romans chapter 12, you'll find very familiar to you are the first two verses, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I've chosen the following passage, beginning in verse 3, to continue our series, This Is Us. Last week, in coordination with our Woodruff campus, we launched a four-week brief hiatus from Jeremiah. In fact, a few of you blessed my heart. I got a few text, emails, and direct messages saying, I'm looking forward to get back to Jeremiah. I appreciate you. That means a lot to me, and we will do that in a few weeks, but we took a pause, and we do this quite often around this time of year, to take four weeks and recast and remind us of who we are as a church. But also, don't forget this, whenever we do a vision series, it's not just a vision for us corporately, though that is crucial, important, and primary. It's a vision for us individually. We, we are only as good corporately to the degree to which you individually add value to our church first and foremost through what you've just got through doing, expressing your love and adoration and devotion to the Lord. And it's important for us to remember that when pastor does a vision series, I'm not just doing it for us as a church. I'm doing it for you spiritually to ask the question, questions I've been asking myself this week in my preparation. Am I living out what will make me add value to us? This is us. Now, we've communicated our vision for years with a simple statement. We want to be a place and a people of new beginnings and real relationships and we believe this happens when you and I gather, grow, give, and go. And so we've done many series and curriculum around that. So we decided this year to take a different look at it, not change our vision or direction, but to just look at it from the standpoint of what makes us us? What makes us tick? Now, last week I chose the inspiration of my favorite casserole my mother cooked as I was growing up, tater tot casserole. Let me give you a number. The number is nine. Nine people sent me pictures this week <laughs> saying, thanks, pastor, as they're holding their tater tot casserole. And nine different times I responded with the same smart aleck comment. I'm glad to know I'm making a difference in your life. I know that that's only the nine that reported back in. I even went to my wife. I said, honey, what in the world is wrong with these people? I preach my heart out. And they go cook the casserole I used in the illustration. She said, DJ, you know I cook. She cooks every day. She cooks a lot. She said, you get in a cook rut. And when somebody gives you a new idea that's easy, you want to run and make it. And I looked at her like she was speaking a foreign language. I don't know what a cook rut is. But I see moms all around go, mm-hmm, that's right. I was in a rut, and tater tot casserole just made my family happy. And then it dawned on me, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm flesh. I struggle. I thought, man, if I mention a casserole when they cook it, this is a powerful platform here. 
I mean, then I thought, don't do it now. Don't, don't ever mention anything that you might want personally. And so I decided I would never do something like that. I would never put anything in front of you that, that I might want. You know, something that you might get me, oh, I don't know, on Pastor Appreciation Month. or you know, I just, I'm not going to use this stage as a way to promote my wants. I just won't do it. But more importantly, this is us. What makes us who we are? As we begin to sort of dissect our identity, there are some weekly activities that happen at Church at the Mill that really serve as the platform for everything else we do. We identified four of them. I gave you this list last week. I'll give it to you again. Christ-centered exposition, the preaching of God's Word, verse by verse, for the glory of God to show Christ in all of the Scriptures. We believe His Word feeds our souls like bread or casserole feeds our stomach. Intentional relationships, spirit-filled worship, and being committed to loving and leading the next generation from the formation of a school of ministry all the way down to the ministry that is happening on our preschool hall. We must pass the faith on. Now, I told you last week, and I want to say it again for those of you tuning in for the first time, you may say, well, that's quite an incomplete list. What about prayer or missions or some ministry to those who are vulnerable? I'm not discounting those at all. They are always a priority, as I mentioned our auction last week. But this is what we do on a weekly basis that creates the momentum from which we're able to launch into missions, from which we're able to mobilize people to do ministry on college campuses or in soup kitchens, in public schools, in homeschool co-ops, in private schools. Somewhere we're able to equip people to walk into your office tomorrow encouraged by the clear preaching of the word, encouraged by genuine love and relationship in the faith, encouraged because you've been a part of spirit fair worship, and encouraged because we poured into your family, your children, and your students where you feel holistic in the approach the church takes to your life. And so really, this is what we bake into our casserole. Now, I knew this before I preached this series, but it's not important that I know this. It's important that you know this because you are the one that makes these things reality in your attentiveness to the Word, in your ability to develop relationships, in your participation in worship, and in your commitment to help us love the next generation. And so that's what we're doing over the next few weeks. We took preaching last week, number one, This morning, I want to talk about intentional relationships, and I want to do so from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. I want to read those verses aloud, if you'll read along with me silently. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we through many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them 
If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then we'll close with verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. When Jesus was forming the first followers of Christ in the New Testament, And he's talking with them about their identity. He makes an incredible statement in the book of John. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Now, I I was not there, and certainly I only have the gift of imagination, and we want to be very careful in reading into text with our imagination because it creates a great deal of subjectivity. But if Jesus said, Ladies and gentlemen, this is how you will be known as my disciples. I have a feeling the attention level would have gone up. This is what will be the identifying mark of your genuine faith. The world identifies us by our steeples, our websites, our signs, even the ministries we fund, the positions we take. Sometimes we're identified by political stances on issues that are driven by biblical values. Other times we're defined, unfortunately, by only what we are opposed to or what we believe God is against. There are times when we're defined by mercy and love that we give to the world. We should be defined by our doctrine. Thus, number one is Christ-centered exposition. Truth matters. Once truth becomes malleable and relative, then all of a sudden you begin to lose your focus on what matters in the gospel. Jesus didn't mention any of those things. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Now, the world needs love, and the scripture says we are to love the world. Of course, we're to love the lost. Of course, we're to love the stranger, the alien, the foreigner. The Bible explicitly calls us to love those. The Bible even explicitly calls us to love our enemies and to pray for our enemies, to forgive our enemies, knowing that God is the God of just and wrath, and that will be taken care of in his time. So the Bible is not excluding all of these ways of love. They are all commanded and demanded of us, and we know that love in a Christian's life is only the result of Christ's love flowing through us. We are the conduit. We receive his love, then we can share it and give it. But none of those are the love he's referring to here. He's specifically saying, the way you love each other in the brotherhood and sisterhood of faith is going to be a distinctive, defining mark as to your genuine Walk with me. Having grown up and cut my teeth on Christianity in very small churches, 
I do think one of the advantages of small churches is that authentic relationships are a must. That doesn't mean you can't go to a small congregation and be fake or hypocritical. You, you certainly can. But when you are combined with a small number of people on a weekly basis, by default, you're going to get to know them and have opportunity to invest in their life in intentional relationships. But when scale increases, with the increase of scale, so too does the increase of risk that church at the meal becomes a location you visit and not a people you connect with. Now, especially those of you sitting up in the top section, and those of you watching online perhaps don't have this perspective this morning, but you've been in our room before. I hope that you have, unless you're one of our folks that worship with us from out of state. But if you could see what I see, I see a large room with people in it. It's impossible emotionally, physically, spiritually to deeply connect with 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people. It's impossible. It doesn't happen. I have, like you have, many, many acquaintances, people that I know, people that from a distance I can care about, but I can't be honest in saying I am intimately and intentionally connected with their life. And even if someone in leadership does his or her best to try to connect with as many people as possible, the average member not only cannot do that, should not carry the burden of believing that as a church grows, you somehow are supernaturally transformed into someone with the ability to intimately and intentionally connect with hundreds or even thousands of people. Which means one of the things a church has to do if the Lord chooses to grow her footprint, the number of people she's impacting, is it has to fight as it grows larger to grow smaller. And the only way this happens is to keep in front of you and me a priority of the Lord. Is reaching people for Christ a priority? Of course it is. Is making disciples of all nations a priority? Of course it is. Is creating venues where the word of God can be opened, whether it be live or digitally, and preached to as many people as possible a priority? Yes, the scripture uses words like large crowds and nations right out of the gates. But so too is the priority that the transformative power of the gospel affect us in our most important relationships in the body. And that is with one another. So I want to begin by just asking you a, a brief question. Would you say that your relationship to your church, which is our church, and if you're considering joining our church, you wouldn't be sitting here if you didn't think that it was a priority. Would you say that your relationship with our church is defined by an intentional level of commitment on your part to pour into and to love those around you. Is this pull up, get a word, worship, and leave church at the mill? 
Or is this a body of believers, many of which you don't know well, but within it there is a smaller circle of people that you love with a distinctive gospel characteristic? And of course, that's a challenging question, and I want it to be a challenging question because it leads you and me to ask the question, and believe me, I've asked this question of myself this week. There are temptations even in a position like mine to go through the motions, to check a list, to execute programs, to lead and cast visions, and to forget in the fray to stop and make sure we are loving each other Because this is what the world should see and, according to Jesus, will see as the defining mark of Christ living in us. Now, I'm keeping this casserole theme. Obviously, it's effective for some of you. What are the ingredients of intentional relationships? What must be present in your life? For you to be remembered one day as a woman of God or a man of God who loved people well and who your life, regardless of whatever leadership God has for you, your life just as a church member, your life as a brother and sister in Christ made an indelible mark on the people around you. Want to write a good funeral sermon with your life? Get this right. Here are the four ingredients. Ingredient number one, authentic humility. Notice what happens in verse three. When you have your Bible open, you've heard, read, and some of you have memorized verses one and two. Do you remember Romans 12 verses one and two? Let me read it to you. It's a great passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by the testing you may discern what, the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and it perfect. Man, that, that'll preach. That's three sermons in two verses right there. It's strong. If you've never memorized that, you should. We are to offer ourselves as living sacrifice. It is a direct comparison and contrast to the cross because Jesus offered himself as a dying sacrifice I don't have to die but that means that when I take up my cross unlike Jesus who took up his cross to die I take up my cross to live and to offer yourself as a living sacrifice is a daily thing I wake up every day and say Lord what would you do with my life today who might I serve today and I think it's fascinating that one verse later right out of the gates He goes after the biggest enemy of truly living out a life of sacrifice. What is that enemy in my life? Well, friend, it's not you. It's not Satan. The biggest enemy I face in me living a life of sacrifice for others is me. I have a propensity to put my needs, my wants, my preferences, my desires, my opinions before yours. Now, I'm not beating myself up because you also have that same propensity. Now, I recognize God has wired certain people who just ooze unselfishness. I have people like that in my life, and I'm grateful for that. But even the most unselfish giving human knows selfishness. It is a part of our sin nature. And so how does Paul address it? Look what he says in verse 3. 
For by grace given to me. (laughs) Notice Paul says, I'm not even saying this because I'm worthy to say it. But by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself, ladies, you certainly could supply herself, more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned you. I love this. We're starting a sermon on loving each other well in intentional relationships by asking you to focus on yourself. It seems ironic. I know we're going to get to the point where I say focus on others, but before you can ever focus on others, there's got to be a spiritual mirror put in front of you, and you got to ask the question, am I thinking of myself realistically? Do I have too high a view of my abilities? Whenever this sneaks into the church, it usually comes in two ways. I'll give you two A words. One is arrogance. We know how to spot this one. Somebody that says, well, you know, I'm, I've got things figured out. I, listen, I just like to roll in, man. Weekends are busy for me. I don't have time for a small group. I'm not, I'll roll in. I love, you know, TJ and his jokes. And so I'm going to roll in and I, I'm going I'm 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 to listen. And man, the choir is so awesome. And the, whoa, 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 yeah. Years ago, I got so involved in church, I got burned out. That's not for me. I'm not interested in that. I just want to come in and get mine. I am good. Friend, that is conceited and arrogant. The other one is apprehension, which manifests itself this way. I don't know if I'm ready to join a small group or get involved in discipleship and open up to people who might fail me. The good news is they're going to fail you, but you're going to fail them. And if you wait to find a perfect small group, you're not going to find one. And if you think you found one, don't join it because you'll make it imperfect. We know how to cloak our self-centeredness in super spiritual language so that it sounds sanctified. But the Lord sees it for what it is. It cannot be that I have a wrong view of me and then am able to have a right view of you. I need to view me correctly. Now, that doesn't mean I'm left hopeless. It doesn't mean I beat myself up. In fact, the end of the passage says, when I look at myself with sober judgment, look at verse 3. He says, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but then here's how you do need to think of yourself. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned you. In other words, God hasn't cast you into the body of Christ and not given you anything to offer. You have your testimony, your strengths, your scars, your weaknesses, your personality. Not everybody's personality jives with everyone else. So God has wired us very diverse. Don't you know this in relationship to marriage and romance? Don't opposites often attract? I can't think of two people more different in personality than me and my wife. And because of that, it brings great unity in our marriage, not perfection. She's pretty close to being perfect. I'm a long way. not in perfection, but it brings great unity to the body of Christ that we recognize that each of us have been given a measure of faith. So don't beat yourself up. Just evaluate yourself honestly and say, Lord, anything in between me and serving you, help me get that out of the way, which leads to the second ingredient, 
Authentic humility is followed by gospel identity. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we through many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Why you take care of your children? It's not because they're children. We all love children, don't we? It's not why you take care of your children. It's because of that possessive pronoun, your. You take care of your children because they're your children. If I asked you to take care of my children, you would. But if I said, hey, can I drop my kids off and you get them to adulthood, you would not. That's not taking care of my children. Caring for them for a few hours so that Laura and I could go on a date, fine. Me taking care of your children or helping our team oversee your children as we take them to camp, no problem. But they are your children. You sign permission slips. Some of you are great. You're like, yeah, here, I'll sign him over. Take him. I don't care what you do to him. Extend the camp if you need to, whatever. They're your children. Why do you care for your spouse? I love many, many, many women who are someone's wife. There's only one that's my wife. Why have I never called you as your pastor and said, hey, while I was preaching Sunday, you didn't look real good. I've made you a doctor's appointment. Based on the casserole analogy, most of you would just go to the doctor. Preacher says I need to go. Here's why. It's your body. You decide how you care for your body. Isn't that refreshing? You decide. It's your body. I need to care for my body and my family's body because it is possessive. Now, notice what Paul does. He takes a very simple truth and he says, and this is how intentional relationships happen in the church. Spiritually speaking, in Christ, I belong to you and you belong to me. Not in an inferior, superior way, but we are one body. This analogy of the body, we just blow past and we forget what he's doing. He's saying, Jesus came. He had a body. God gave Jesus a body in the womb of Mary. That body was born. We'll celebrate that in a few months at Christmas. That body lived 33 years. That body walked on water, healed the sick, cared for those who were in need. That body did amazing things. That body also ate. It slept. He wept. He was tired. That body was beaten beyond recognition. That body was sacrificed. That body died. That body rose again. And then that body left. And when he left, he said, you are now my body. And just like Jesus was in the flesh during his time on earth, and he still is, he's in heaven, his flesh on earth now is not his physical presence. It is his spiritual presence in flesh and blood. Why can he live in our flesh and blood? Because he sacrificed his flesh and blood to pay for the sins of our flesh and blood, which means upon the application of his blood, my body and my life is forgiven of all trespasses, which means I am now, by God's declaration, not by my own behavior, but by God's declaration, I am now a worthy vessel for the indwelling spirit of God. And so are you which means you and I have grounds to connect in the body of Christ I have with no other people on earth. 
There are many people in my life and there are many people in your life who you love and care about. You may share DNA with them. You may be connected with them by flesh and blood, but you're not connected to them spiritually. But when you are connected in the body of Christ, then my identity in Jesus means I have to care about you. Now, like you, I'm not Christ. I cannot intimately invest in three or four or five or 10,000 people. But I can put myself in a position in my church to live out this passage when I looked across a table at someone I'm discipling, when I serve beside someone, or I teach young people, or when I'm in a small group, I show up even when I'm tired and I don't feel good because I'm saying, you belong to me. And to the degree that I can, just as I care for my hand, just as this hand feeds this mouth and this foot took this body to this place because this is where I'm supposed to be, I need to do my part as a member of the body of Christ to move you, another part of the member of the body of Christ, along in your journey. It's wrapped up in Jesus. You just don't get to say, I love Jesus, but I'm not about his body. None of you, as many preachers have joked, would look at a woman that you are dating and saying, you have a beautiful face, but I don't like the way your body looks. That would be the last date, and I hope you get slapped in the face. No, 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 no. There is no separation between our attraction. We don't look at our children and judge parts of their body differently. We love them wholly because there is a wholeness to who they are. When we love the Lord, it grows within us a love for the church. And by the way, when I bury saints in the Lord, you know what people talk about? <laughs> How much he or she loved their church. Third ingredient, we're almost there. Third ingredient, spiritual ability. Look at verse 8. I love verse 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he does this list. You see them there of prophecy in our proportion of our faith, of service and serving. You can study that list if you want. That's not an exhaustive list. In fact, a great definition of a spiritual gift is given to us in the book of 1 Corinthians. You may want to jot this down in your margin. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. N notice that each gets a spiritual gift that it is from the Holy Spirit, and that it is to build up the church. A lot of the times when spiritual gifts are abused or misused, they're abused and misused for the building up of the personality. That's not the way it works. God gives you your gifts to bless me, and he gives me my gifts to bless you. But you know what that means? You got something to give. Some of you may think it would petrify you to stand in front of a group and deliver a lesson. Others of you could not sing. If your life depended on it, you barely could play the radio. There are still others of you. Leadership is not your thing. You don't want to be put in charge of anything. Can I tell you that the body of Christ needs you? Unfortunately, at church, we do tend to elevate and recognize men and women with very public gifts. I think this is why Paul keeps listing all the gifts. And he says, you are to use them to the degree to which God has gifted you with great zeal. You have something to offer. Theologian Wayne Grudem defined it this way. If you want to know what a spiritual gift is, a spiritual gift is anything that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry 
of the church. I love the list in the Bible. There are three of them in different places, but they're never meant to be exhaustive. God has given you a measure of gifts that you are to use, and gifts are like muscles. If you don't use them, you don't develop them, you don't use them, you lose them. And then there's one final ingredient, and this is the one I want to end on, passionate activity. Look what the scripture says beginning in verse 11. Do not be slothful. Now, you could stop there. We know that sloth is laziness, but that's not what he says. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So all of that comes out of verse 9. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. If you took all those imperatives and made a list, it would look something like this list right here. Love, honor, serve, rejoice, endure, pray, help, welcome. If you've ever said, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Read this list again. Love people in your church. Honor people. Serve, rejoice, endure, pray, help, welcome. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about that. But I'm facing a major decision, and I want to discern his will. Do you know who the people are who discern the will of God the best? Are the people who, before they encountered the crossroads where they needed to discern the will of God, they were already loving and serving and honoring and rejoicing and enduring and praying and helping and welcoming. These are the things that we are supposed to do. We never struggle to hope we're treated this way. I want my church to love me. I want my church to serve me and honor me and give me reason to joy and pray for me and help me and welcome me. And you know what? That's not bad to have demands and expectations of the body of Christ. But you know what? We are only as loving to the degree that you're loving. We are you and you are we. And so when we begin to think about these activities, be passionate about them. Now, small group's not the only place this happens at Church at the Mill. But it is the primary place this happens. It's why I believe with all my heart that if you were to ask me the two most important places to be on a weekly basis, it's in weekly worship under the preaching of God's word, under the leadership of the pastor, under the worship leadership of our music ministry, and it's involved in a small group. But I know you expect me to say that. What about a guy that went from being a visitor to a guest to a member to a small group member and now a small group leader. What about somebody just like you? Well, Chucky's that guy. Take a look at his testimony. Me and my wife, we were actually serving in a smaller church in the community, and we had a, uh, a young man that was actually, I coached in baseball. His parents actually went to the mill, and they invited my wife and I to come to see him get baptized here at the church. And immediately when we walked through the door, we knew there was something different about this church. We could see the passion in the people that were praising God, the worship, and uh, on the ride home, I looked over at my wife and I said, uh, I feel like the Lord's calling us to this church. I, like anyone else, came to the mill thinking of how am I gonna fit into such a large church? But my wife and I were very intentional on connecting with a small group. So we immediately got plugged into a small group and after we did, you know, what seemed big became small. Until we came to the mill, um, discipleship was not something that was discussed a lot. Since I've been here, I've seen so much growth, only, not only in myself and my wife, also my teenage boys who are part of discipleships. Most of the discipleship that I've seen has spurred out of my small group. And it's an intentional discipleship, an intentional connection with a person, 
that it says, hey, I'm willing to share in your struggles. I'm willing to be here when you need encouragement. I'm willing to be here when you need prayer. It's a victory that we get to share together. I was recently watching an episode of uh, Little House on the Prairie with my daughter, and uh, a very important quote came up, and it was about Laura's father. Her father was really discouraged. He was going through a tough time, and it was getting to the point where he needed to get his crop ready for harvest and he couldn't do it alone. What he found was a, a army of friends that came and rescued him. He said that I have harvested a crop that I did not know that I had planted, a harvest of friends, and that's what small group is. If you're disconnected now and you're looking for a connection, you're looking for a little bit more out of Church of the Mill, you know, go and visit small groups. You know, go and see where do you fit in, where do you connect with a group of people. And once you find that connection, you're gonna know. You're gonna know, you're gonna feel it, and, and when you feel that connection, it'll change your life. I, I don't think I could say it any better. And today's that day, today's group link. I'm gonna pray, and when I say amen, you're gonna exit like you do every week. At every exit, there's someone that's gonna hand you a pamphlet of information. If you've never been connected to a small group, if you need to find a small group, if you think, well, I'm pre-registered, I already talked to my small group leader, but you're not sure, Confirm today. There are three simple directions for you to go in as you spend just a few extra minutes on our campus making your way into your week. Here are those three directions. If you are between the ages of 18 and 59, all of the small groups for you are in the student center this morning. There are many, many small group leaders there, and there is an army of people who want to answer your questions. Our small groups meet literally on every day of the week and at different times. There are many on our campus on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights, and there are now a growing number, many fold, off of our campus. If you are one of our precious senior adults, 60 and older, to my left is our senior adult wing. And down this hallway and in those classrooms are small groups ready to talk with you. And then if you want to be a part of a multi generational small group, a group not defined necessarily by age, they are located in the concourse. And all that information is going to be handed to you. Now, let me tell you what's not going to happen. N nobody is going to arm wrestle you down and take your car keys away until you sign up today. Well, probably we will, but we won't tell you that until you go. But why not? You're so busy. Why not today take an extra five or ten minutes, get connected, and find a small group? All groups launch the Sunday after Labor Day. So this gives us a few weeks to make sure everyone has a small group. Why? Because we have to be intentional about our relationship. And as I always say, if there's a need in your heart and you'd like to talk to a pastor or a counselor today, our prayer room is open and ready to receive you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and giving us the opportunity to be together. A lot of times our invitation is at the altar. Today our invitation is out in the concourse, in the student center, and in the senior adult wing. I pray that the people who right now, even as I pray, who are talking themselves out of going, that you would stop them, that there would be a check in their spirit, and that they would make intentional relationships a part of their Church at the Mill experience. And for those joining us online, I pray they would take advantage of the digital opportunity to make sure they too are connected with a small group. We love you. We leave by your grace, we're led by your word, we're empowered by your spirit. 
in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.